Well, good morning. Let me add my welcome to you. Um, good to see you this morning on a dreary Sunday morning outside, but it's wonderful inside. Amen. Great singing this morning. Great reminders of the gospel and the difference it makes in our lives. I mean, I was sitting here thinking in that last song, which is um, one of my favorite. I was introduced to that song in seminary many, many years ago and through the ministry of Stuart Townsend and Keith Getty and, and them coming to Louisville and doing a thing there for a class that I was a part of, a theology student headed for the pastorate in a worship ministry class. There was, you can't get more awkward than that when you're in seminary. And uh, nothing against you guys, Ricky, but uh, we're just not the same all the time. And uh, I stuck out like a sore thumb, but it was good and introduced to his ministry and their ministry in that song. Man, I was just thinking about we as Christians, when we gather together and we sing, we're doing what all people do is we sing about what we're passionate about. I know I'm a country music guy. I love country music. I've always liked country music. And so what's in country music? You got songs about your dog that's dead, your old broken down truck, a woman who's left you, and stuff that I don't partake of, booze, beer, right? Those are the four things that make up a good country song. And so you sing about that because that's your life. That's what you love. That's what's happening. But as we come together as Christians, we gather to exalt the name of Jesus and make much of what he's done for us. And so we sing about weird stuff like blood and crucifixion and resurrection and things that the world doesn't understand. But when we've been transformed by Jesus, it has gripped our hearts and we want to lift our voices and sing. So it's good to see you this morning. If you're a guest this morning, I hope you got a little, I think it's a yellow card that we typically try to give our guests and ask you to fill it out. I would really encourage you to do that and, and turn it in as you leave this morning. But we're glad to have you, both member and non-member, and those who are joining us online, uh, thank you for joining in as well. Take your Bible and let's open up to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to continue on in our study of this letter that we began last week. You know, we took three weeks off, uh, main largely because of the weather and the and the snow and the ice that kept hitting us on the weekends. And now, like Ricky said, two Sundays in a row, we're on this new winning streak. And this time of year, we want winning streaks, right? If you're a basketball fan, you know what I'm talking about. We're moving toward March Madness, conference tournaments, and the, and the big dance. And I just want you to know, my team, the Arkansas Razorbacks, are 9-0 the last nine games in the SEC. We're the hottest team in the conference. We're hopefully being the top 10 this week. Uh, just great days to be a Razorback. Could be horrible Tuesday when we play uh, again, but it's good right now. But uh, we want to be on a winning streak in every facet of our lives. Philippians chapter 1, speaking of for sports, you remember the name Vanderlei Delima? Vanderlei Delima. Vanderlei was a young boy who grew up in the nation of Brazil. His parents were just peasants. They were dirt farmers, didn't really have two nickels to rub together, and so barely could make enough money, scrounge enough money together to buy beans and rice to feed the family. And so Vanderlei, at the age of eight years old, had to go to work. Rather than playing and being with his friends and doing what little boys normally do, which is play, he had to go to work. He had to be in the fields. And so he would have rather play, but he had another passion, and that was running. Vanderlei was a great runner. He was fast. He was agile. He, was, he had great endurance, and so he would run everywhere. In fact, Vanderlei ran so well that people began to talk about how well this young boy could run. And so the years began to, to pile up, and he was moving up into his teenage years, and then news of his abilities began to spread, even all the way up to the Brazilian Olympic Committee. 
They had heard about his ability, came and recruited him into their athletes in preparation for the 2004 Brazilian team going to Athens, Greece for the Olympics. And so it was there in 2004 in the Olympic Games that Vanderlei de Lima ran the marathon race. But he didn't just run this race. In fact, 22 miles into the race, Vanderlei was leading the pack against all those other people. At that point in the race, though, a deranged man by the name of Neil Horan came out of the crowd on one side of the road and shoved Vanderlei over into the other side of the road into the spectators. And so Vanderlei, who was leading the pack, now is finding himself in the crowd, in the spectators, trying to get up out of that. And now all of a sudden he's running the race again, but he's in third place, not in first place. And on top of that, if you know running, you know that seconds and even tenths of seconds are a big deal. He's 20 seconds behind the leader. Almost an insurmountable position to be in at this point in the race. And yet he keeps running. So he runs and he's coming into the last home stretch. They come into that final section where they're coming into the stadium. And Vanderlei is still in third place. And as he crosses or gets close to the, to the, to the finish line, Vanderlei is pumping his arms. He's, he's excited about the fact that he's going to finish this race, not in first place where he would like to be, but he's excited because he's finishing in the meddling. He's going to finish third. Porters and commentators were in all of his expression. In fact, his response caused him to be remembered more than those two guys who won gold and silver that year. He was interviewed later. A reporter asked him about his elation, and Vanderlei explained how meddling in the games was a unique moment because most, most athletes who are training and longing for this and looking toward this never have this opportunity to win a medal in the Olympic Games. He told the reporter that he did this for his country. He told him that he did it for himself. In fact, Vanderlei did not play the victim or, or complain about his circumstances and what happened to him on the road there at the 22-mile mark that robbed him potentially of gold. And so because of his sportsmanship in that games, he was awarded the Pierre de Coubertin Medal for Sportsmanship. It goes to the one athlete in the Olympic Games that expresses greatest sportsmanship. Yeah. You hear and remember Vandalay de Lima's story. It's a great one. It's a wonderful story. In many ways, we as Christians, as the church, may feel like Vanderlei sometimes. We may feel like we're constantly being shoved out of the race, especially in the year that we've just had, or even the circumstances we find ourselves still in today. It seems like that the, that the enemy is working overtime to shove us out of the race. The reality is, according to Hebrews 12, we are in a race, right? We're in the race of life. We're in this race in the Christian life. We're seeking to finish and finish well. The Bible tells us we're to run this race with endurance, but there is always someone, there's always something trying to push us off to the side, off into the crowd and take us out of the race. What we see here in the letter to the Philippian church is that I believe Paul felt this way as well. You know, the circumstances that Paul finds himself in. We talked about it last week, and Paul here had faithfully served the Lord through the preaching of the gospel for years, and now he finds himself in a prison awaiting the verdict from the emperor that would decide the course of his life. Rather than complaining about the unfairness of his situation, Paul rejoiced 
Paul was excited about the Lord. He was excited about what the Lord was doing. He understood that the circumstances of his life had really worked out for the good of the gospel, according to chapter 1, verse 12. It had advanced the gospel. And so as we continue in this letter this morning, we discover that the Philippian believers were in many ways like those spectators who picked Vanderlei de Lima up off the ground and got him back in the race. These Philippian believers were partners with Paul in the work of the gospel. They were a wonderful source of encouragement, a wonderful source of blessing in his life, and Paul was grateful for their partnership. Look with me in verse 3. Let's read this passage through verse 11. I'm just going to tell you right now, i got a long ways to go and short time to get. Country song, I think, right? Verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, this morning, thank you for the gift of your church. Thank you for the gift of having brothers and sisters in the Lord who are a source of blessing and encouragement for us. God, we thank you for the partnership that we share as believers with Jesus in this great endeavor. God, I pray your blessings upon your word that you would open our hearts and our minds and teach us how to appreciate what you've given us. God, encourage us this morning and help us to be an encouragement to others. Lord, I pray as Ricky prayed earlier that others who don't know Jesus, be drawn to Jesus through the gospel this morning. We offer this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I don't know if you picked up, but as you read through that passage there, those several verses, if you're from the South, which is most of, not all of us in this room, I don't know about you, but I have a hard time not saying y'all when it's you all. I, I want to say y'all. It just seems so uh, encumbrancing, uh, another word I've just created, um, there in that passage. So I may slip and say y'all this morning because my Arcanese comes out at times. So Philippians chapter one, we're going to look at this passage this morning. You know, in all of Paul's letters to the churches, uh, with the exception of one, that would be the letter to the church of Galatia, either a thanksgiving report or a benediction follows on the heels of the salutation or the, the opening words, the address that he's given. And so unlike what he does in, with his salutations, where he modifies and thereby sort of Christianizes this salutation, this, this uh, sort of normal way to start a letter, Paul sort of Christianizes it in his letters, but he takes the form of what would have natural been, naturally been a, uh, an approach to write a letter, but he does it different or, and adds a whole lot more to this, to this thanksgiving or this this uh, report that is given that's following, this benediction that's following the salutation. There, uh, he does a very uniquely Christian thing. 
He, rather than the normal health wish that you would get in a letter back then, something that would be common to what we would say, I trust this letter finds you well. Rather than doing that, Paul talks about what he's thankful in the people. He, he offers prayer for them. And so it's really personal, it's really intimate, it's really warm in the way he addresses the believers, the churches that he is speaking to. And so the content of Paul's thanksgivings what we see as we read his letters is that they anticipate what he's going to articulate in the letter. They give us a, a window into what he's going to address and what he's going to express and speak to. So here we see they're expressing the context of prayer. He offers a prayer of thanksgiving for these believers, people he knows very, very well. And in this prayerful thanksgiving, he offers a twofold report. First, we see a prayer as thanksgiving for their partnership in the gospel. He's going to thank them for their partnership in this work. And not only helping him, because we know that they gave him gifts, they supported him monetarily, they prayed for him, and so they're supporting his work in the gospel, but they're working in the gospel as well. And so they're partners in this. But he's also going to pray and thank them for, uh, or he's going to offer a prayer of thanksgiving as a petition for their continued fruitfulness in living out that gospel. In fact, as we get to the final chapter in Philippians, we're going to see him address two specific women who were at odds with one another. And as you know, when the church is at odds with one another, it damages our witness to a watching world. And so he's always concerned about the church and the testimony of the church. And so he's speaking and writing and prayerfully petitioning for their fruitfulness as they live out the gospel. Paul was deeply thankful, deeply prayerful for the Philippian believers because of this common partnership that they had in the gospel. And he expresses this gratitude in five ways that I want you to see this morning. First thing is this. We see him expressing it as he cherished in memory his partners. He, he cherished in memory who these people were, how they had served, how they continued to walk faithfully with the Lord. And if we were to go over a few books or a few letters in the New Testament to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 15, 16, uh, 16, 17, and 18, we would see Paul there give a series of imperatives to that church telling them what should be indicative of their life. He urges them there in those verses to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and in all circumstances to give thanks. Now think about where Paul's at. Think about what Paul is doing. He's writing a letter from prison, from jail, as he's awaiting a verdict on his life. And what is he doing? He's doing those three things. He's giving thanks, he's praying at all times, and he is rejoicing always. See, Paul lived out what he preached. His life gave evidence that prayer and thanksgiving and joy go together in this dissoluble union. It's the way the Christian life ought to look. See this on display here in verses 3 and 4. As he gives thanks for these Philippian believers through prayer, but not just through prayer, prayer with joy. The apostle here remembers the blessings and thanks God for these, these, these Philippians. His mind focuses on the people that he has been blessed to know rather than the blessings that they may have given him. I just mentioned that the Philippian believers we know had given at least one gift to the apostle. They had sent it by the hand of Epaphroditus. We'll get to that in a, in a few chapters. And so Paul commends them and thanks them for the, their gift. But I don't believe as Paul's praying for them and thanking God for them that that is what he has in mind. Uh, solely. 
It's in his mind, but God, or I should say, Paul never in his letters, at least usually does not thank God for things. He thanks God for people. And the blessing of those people obviously helps with things, but his focus is always on the Christian. It's always on the believer. It's always on the person. He's grateful for the gift of the people that God has placed around him. Grateful for them, despite whatever frustration they bring into his life. He's thankful for them whatever, despite whatever grief they may cause him. And if you're around people long enough, what do you think they're going to do to you, and what are you going to do to them? They're going to frustrate them. They're going to frustrate you. You're going to bring grief in their life. They're going to bring grief in your life. That's what it means to be human. We disappoint one another. If I've never disappointed you, you haven't been around me long enough. Right? Hush. That's husbandly authority right there on display. She'll spank me later. You know, people disappoint us. Paul's never turned off by that when it came to the people of God. Loved them. He loved these believers. And so they were a source of wonderful joy, wonderful thanksgiving in his life. And, and so when you read what he says in verse 3 and 4, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always, in every prayer of mine, with joy, with thanksgiving. I just, in my mind, begin to wonder, I wonder who he's thinking about. Who are these people that his mind goes to as he prays? You surely got to think of Lydia in Acts chapter 16, that woman who was there in that first prayer meeting that Paul and Silas and and others roll up to and they begin to preach the gospel. And Lydia is there, this woman from Thyatira, a wealthy woman who had resources. She and her house hear the gospel and believe and they open it up so that a church could be planted in their community. Surely he's also thinking of that slave girl later on in Acts chapter 16 as Paul and Silas and other guys are walking around and they're preaching the gospel and they're living out the gospel and this slave girl who's demon-possessed continues to follow them around and and talk about who they are and what they're doing. And he finally got irritated and cast the demon out. Maybe he's thinking of the jailer because when that young slave girl was Uh, exercised and the demon was tossed out. No longer was she valuable to her masters. And so they had Paul and Silas put in prison because they had destroyed their business and they're in in the jail. An earthquake happened and the jailer thought that everybody had escaped and he was going to take his own life. But Paul calls out and says, don't do that. And through all of that situation, through all those circumstances, the jailer in his house comes to faith in Jesus. Paul's thinking of these, remembering these wonderful situations, these wonderful circumstances. He's wondering, or he's, he's thankful and, and, and remembering these incredible moments where the gospel penetrated darkness and changed lives. Cherished that wealthy woman. Cherished and remembered that slave girl, that middle-class jailer. Paul was no respecters of person. He loved every person. And the gospel is no respecters of persons. It it changes anybody and everybody who would believe on it. It doesn't matter the person. Paul Paul was grateful for, for them because of the gospel that had transformed all of their lives. And today in our church right here called Red Lane, we cherish our fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. We cherish the memory of how Jesus has changed our lives and taken us from darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light, that he's changed us. We're not what we hope to be. We're not what we will one day be, but we're moving in that direction. We're going to talk about more of that in a moment. There's a second thing we see here in his gratitude, and it's this idea of conformity to the gospel. Verse 5, as we continue, gives us 
the reason for his joy and the reason for his celebration. He says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, it provides this basis for his gratitude. He thanked God for them in all of his prayers because they were partners in the gospel. The word partner here that's translated as such in the English Standard Version is the Greek term koinonia. You probably have heard that term. I've said it quite often when we come to it in a passage. And most of the time in the New Testament, it is translated fellowship, right? That's what we usually talk about. We love fellowship in the Southern Baptist Church because typically for us, it means fried chicken. It means dinner on the lawn. It means sweet iced tea and everything else that's Southern and fattening, right? That's that's fellowship. And so that's what we tend to think of when we hear fellowship. And so really the understanding of this term has been sullied or, or, or lessened in our Christian culture. American church, we refer to Christians getting together and hanging out, and that is fellowship. And so if you invite a pagan neighbor to your home for a meal, that's friendship. But if you invite a Christian neighbor to your home, you're enjoying fellowship. If you attend a meeting at church and leave as soon as it's over, you have participated in a service. Keep in mind what I'm saying here. If you get up and leave as soon as this is over, you just have the service. But if you stay and have coffee or go to a small group, you've enjoyed fellowship. That's the way we view this in the American church. So fellowship has become for us little more than warm friendship with believers. I'm not disparaging that. I'm just trying to help you understand what this term really signals in the text. See, this understanding of koinonia would have been foreign to the Philippian believers. To them, it would have carried a commercial uh, aspect to the, to the understanding, some sort of commercial overtones. And in other words, let me lay it out like this. If Andrew and Peter, disciples, go in business together, they pull their money, and they buy a fishing boat, then biblically speaking, looking at this term from a biblical standpoint, they have entered into koinonia. They've entered into partnership with one another. We see this word all the time in the New Testament tied to financial matters. One example is Romans chapter 15 when the Macedonian believers, which would have been these Philippians, when they send money to help the poor Christians in Jerusalem, we see there in the text that they have entered into koinonia with these other believers in Jerusalem. They have partnered together in the gospel. And so at the very heart of fellowship then, as D.A. Carson says, is self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. Let's go back to Andrew and Peter. They put their savings into a fishing boat, so they are sharing the vision that will put this fledging business on its feet. And so it follows that Christian fellowship then is self-sacrificing conformity to the gospel. It's more than potluck on the grounds. It's more than having a brother or sister in your home for coffee. Those things are important. Those things are good. But when we talk of the gospel and the koinonia that comes from it, it is more than that. It is a partnership, a conformity, a shared vision that comes together for one purpose, to bring glory to the Lord through the proclamation of the gospel. So it calls forth our commitment and undivided devotion. And Paul prayerfully gives thanks to God for with joy here. He does so because of their partnership as fellow believers and workers in the gospel. See, they have rolled up their sleeves and they've gone to work. They have not 
They've not stepped back because of his imprisonment. There were some believers in that day when they heard Paul was in trouble, rather than running to him, they shrunk back. I've served churches, and I'm not going to tell you the names. But you come in there, and I'm a young pastor. I'm in my early 30s, and and I come in. This is what I believe the Lord wants us to do. Pastor, that's what this church needs. That's what this community needs. And then as things get difficult, because that can happen in a Baptist church, when the vision begins to change the norms of what's happening, what I've experienced in some of my ministry stops along the way is that people, when it gets hot in the kitchen, they get out, and they leave you on an island. Philippians didn't do that to Paul. They partnered with him in the gospel. There's a conformity there. But look what else he says. From the first day until now, this has been happening. You see, it began when they first heard and believed the gospel. As Lydia opened up her home, and then it continued on. As they were prayerful, as they were evangelistic personally, as they gave financial support in the work of the gospel, all of this was the conformity of the gospel vision that they grasp. There's a third area of gratitude, and it's confident in sanctification. Paul in verse 6 says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Here's something we all need to hear this morning. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, if you go to Matthew chapter 7, will be in heaven one day. Not everyone who says, I'm following you, Jesus, is actually following Jesus. I mean, you need an example of that. Go to the uh, final moments of Jesus' life and what is happening. Judas Iscariot, who is one of the twelve, literally one of the apostles, or one of the the disciples going to be apostles, and he turns out to be a turncoat. He denied Jesus. There's all kinds of examples in this. In fact, in John chapter 2, early on in Jesus' ministry, we see there that many people believed in Jesus' name because of the miracles he did. But Jesus in John 2, John 2, 24 says, John says that Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. In other words, he knew who was genuine and he knew who was not genuine in the faith. Later on in John 8.31, he tells us that the true followers of Jesus, his followers that are disciples, that are genuine, are those who obey his word. Not all who say yes to Jesus are regenerate. Hebrews 3.14 teaches that proof of genuine faith is persevering in the faith to the very end. In fact, we go to the parable of the soils that the Gospels lay out for us. Mark chapter 4 specifically, we see there that in, those, in that parable, one of the soils Jesus talks about is that when the seed is hitting the ground, the things immediately spring up, but because they have no root, they fade away. And he, he relates that to the trials and tribulations of the Christian life. Pulls them away from the Gospel. There was never a genuine faith there to begin with. None of this is true of the Philippian believers. God had begun a good work in them. They had genuinely believed on Jesus when they believed the gospel. They had shown evidence of their conversion, and Paul was convinced that they would continue to walk in it. He was sure of this not because of their strength. He was sure of this not because of their personal commitment. He was sure of this not because of their abilities as Philippian believers. He was sure of it because it was in the Lord's hand. You see, salvation is not a work of humanity. I don't choose Christ. Christ chooses me. And he enables me to live that out day by day by day. That's what Paul is saying here, that he who began a good work will bring it to completion. This gave Paul reason to rejoice 
reason to be thankful. The beauty of salvation between that first day and that last day is this wonderful work of God that we call sanctification. As believers are being confirmed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. So these Philippians were growing in sanctification. They were becoming more like Jesus with every struggle, with every step of faith, with every victory. You see, God uses the ups and the downs, the mountaintops and the valleys, and everything in between to grow his people. You would not be where you are spiritually today if you had not had other things happen to you yesterday that's brought you whether good or bad. Gone negatively to the ups and downs that the Lord allows to come into your life, you didn't learn anything. But if you respond positively and you embrace that difficulty and you embrace the Lord's strength to, to be there, you grow in that. Paul was confident in their sanctification. God had begun a good work and he will complete it in them. And the same is true for us today. There's a fourth area of gratitude. We see he was constant in affection. Verse 7 and 8, it's right for me to feel this way about y'all because I hold you in my heart for y'all are partakers with me of grace. It sounds better to say y'all. Both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ. Jesus. I believe that nothing thrilled the apostle's heart more than knowing that his spiritual children were walking faithfully. I know that over the years, and I'm 20 plus years in ministry now, some form or fashion, the things that has hurt me most is the folks that said yes to Jesus, walked with the Lord for a while, and then walked away. You invest, I mean, personally, I take it because I take it negatively because you invest time, you invest energy, you invest prayer, you invest discipleship, and it seems like it's all for naught, but really it's not even all money. I mean, think about what the Lord must feel. Someone walks away. Nothing thrilled this apostle's heart more than seeing that the Philippians were walking and growing in the faith. This partnership they shared was the source of his joy and affection for them. He did not hold back his love for them as we just read in these verses like many in his culture would have done. You see, the Stoics in this culture were cautious about whole life commitments and being vulnerable. Instead, what the Stoic influence would have done, it would would have encouraged people to play things cool so you don't get hurt. Don't get too involved. Don't get too attached because you may become disappointed. And the American culture is just like that. How many times in the church, let's just be honest this morning, how many times in the church do we hold out on something waiting for something better to come along? I don't know if I can commit to that Can't for my students. I know that God can just radically change my teenager's life by getting away for five days, but there may be something coming along that's, you know, sports or whatever, and so you just kind of wait for that. Why is it that we put spiritual things on the back burner and everything else in front? We don't want to get too attached to people because they may let us down. They're going to let you down. You're going to be royally disappointed from family and friends and neighbors and everyone else. That's a fact of life, but it shouldn't inhibit us as Christians from investing ourselves in the lives of other people. Y'all awake? Quiet today. We today, even Christians in America, tend to keep people at arm's length. We don't want to get involved. Definitely don't want to get emotionally involved. 
Ministry's dirty. Ministry's messy. We have walked with some families in the last few years in our church. Have broken homes, horses. Trying to sit down and talking with individuals and trying to reconcile, bring them together. Christians step in and be a source of strength and stability and hope and encouragement and, 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 and enrichment in people's lives rather than pulling out and turning our heads. Paul was all in on his affection, constant in it. His love for the Philippians trumped his present circumstances and his hardships. That's why he was able to ride and say, rejoice, rejoice always. He wasn't looking at his circumstances. He was looking at the people that he wanted to encourage. The reason for all of this is because they were partakers of grace with him. See, they both had experienced the same gift of salvation. They were both working to bring this gift to others who need it. They were partners in the gospel. So to reinforce his constant affection, Paul here calls God as witness in verse 8. It's not like he was saying, I'm, I want you to believe me, but uh, I may not be so trustworthy, and so I'm going to bring God in to help hold me accountable to love you. No, what he's saying here is, may God be witness here and, and prove that I love you. I desperately, desperately, desperately love you. Constant in my affection for you. Praying at all times for you. May we in the church today express this kind of constant affection for our brothers and sisters in this local church. May we yoke ourselves together as fellow partakers of grace. May we strive together as one people in the work of the gospel with deep love and affections. You see, passion for the gospel is what bound this people together and is what binds us together in love. Fifth and final area of gratitude, and we're going to call this continual in prayer. Paul was continual in his prayers for these believers. Verses 9 through 11, Paul moves from a prayer of thankfulness for their partnership, as I said earlier. Now he's going to move into this prayer of petition for their fruitfulness. And if we go back to verses 3 and 4, we could see there some uh, four things about the way Paul prayed for them. And then it's going to be fleshed out in verses 9 and 11. So I just want to give you these four things. We see here that he's particular in his prayer. As you read this passage, you don't get the impression he was simply praying, Lord, bless the Philippian believers. But let's be honest, that's how we typically pray about people or pray for people. Lord, just bless them. No specificity there, no uh, details there, just a generic, bland prayer. And that's at least better than no prayer at all. But Paul's very particular in his prayer. Verses 9 through 11, he lays out a very particular prayer of petition for them. Specific, it's fine-tuned. Secondly, we see it's personal prayer. Paul knew these individuals, thus his prayer was personal in tone and personal in content. And there's nothing wrong with praying for people we don't know. But when we know the people we're praying for, there ought to be some personal stuff there, some affection there, some urgency there, some unction there. Thirdly, we see privileged prayer. He says, making my prayer with joy. It was an honor and privilege for Paul to pray on behalf of them. Sometimes I think we as Christians, I'm just to be honest, we, we make it more drudgery than a privilege and an honor to pray for our brothers and sisters. And then we see practical prayer. Again, that word making. Uh, the tense of the word here emphasizes Paul's constant practice of making requests for them. He knew the people. He knew the needs. Therefore, he was able to pray for the practical needs of 
the church. That's the way Paul is continuing in his prayer. He did not want to see it set back and rest on past laurels. And bless God, here, I don't know if you've known this, uh, because we haven't made a big deal about it, but we are this year celebrating 175 years. 175 years as a church. We're going to have a big celebration this fall, trying to work on some dates. I've invited uh, a good friend of mine, a great preacher, a great leader in our denomination to come and to make that day what it needs to be as we celebrate the past and look to the future. That's what I told him the other day. I was like, I want this day to be big as we celebrate all God's blessings over the last 175 years, but we can't sit there. We want to cast vision for the next 175 years of how God is going to use this church in this community for his glory. That's what Paul wanted to see in the church of Philippi. He wanted them to press forward in spiritual maturity, press forward in fruitfulness. And so in these final three verses, he prays for three marks of spiritual maturity to be present in their lives. And I'm going to borrow some, some descriptions from Johnny Hunt, the way he articulates these three areas of spiritual maturity. Verse 9, we see this idea of abounding in compassion. So as he continues in prayer, he's wanting them to abound in compassion. This word abounding, which it says here, abound more and more in verse 9, carries the idea of overflowing. It's the idea of going over the top. You may think about when we get into spring and you're filling up water buckets because you're going to plant flowers and you put it under the faucet and you forget that you turned it on, you turn around and it's running over the edge. That's the idea of this term. And then it's, it's in conjunction with the word love. The word love here is agape. It's, uh, there's three or four different words in the Greek that speak of love. This is the one that is uh, grounded in the character of the Lord. It's a little different than the expression that we see in verse 8 of having this affection that really comes from one's guts. This love is grounded in the character and the action of God. It's a sober kind of love that places a high value on the person or individual and seeks to benefit it. No strings attached. This love is to grow through knowledge and discernment, Paul talks about. So these are the banks of the love's river, keeping the water within its bounds. Knowledge has to do with God's word. It speaks of growing in the word. Devotional life is at the forefront here. How can we serve God if we don't know him? You can't serve God. You can't be in a relationship with someone you're not actively getting to know. Grow in our knowledge of Him through His Word, then we grow in our discernment. So we develop a discerning love that is able to compassionately serve others in ways that are healthy, which brings us to this second mark of maturity we see in verse 10 that He prays for. And that is this idea of approving in character, so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Just as the depth of insight is inseparably linked to an experiential knowledge of God, so a pure and blameless life is inseparably linked to being able to discern what is excellent. Paul desired to see the Philippians grow in their character by being able to detect the flaws in worldly philosophies. Man, how we in the church today need to take great strides to guard ourselves from impurity and to walk blamelessly with the Lord so that we can see the things that are excellent and good, the things that we should be a part of. You only do that as you grow in spiritual maturity, and continue to move forward in character. There's a third mark, and that is advancing in conduct. He says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, through the glory and praise of God. Conduct here has a natural way of revealing a person's character. 
The Philippians had experienced the justification of Christ through his shed blood. Their sins, we know, had been covered and washed, just like ours. His righteousness had been imputed on them. And so, therefore, Paul here was praying that Christ's righteousness would then be pressed out in and through their lives and become characteristic in their conduct. I wonder how many times... How many times in our circles of influence, people look at our lives and wonder, or maybe they don't ever wonder about your spirituality because they just can't. It should never be true of us as Christ's life, as he's abiding in us, must be pressed out to a watching world. The fruit of righteousness is to be evident. What is he speaking of here? Well, Paul would lay it out a little bit more in a little bit more detail in Galatians 5 as he lays out the fruit singular of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The way Paul explains it, it, we're not to have one or two or three or almost all of those. We're to have every one of those at the same time being pressed out through our lives. How does that happen? As you walk in fellowship and submission and worship of God. And all of this to the glory, praise of God. You know, it would have been easy, would have been even understandable for Vanderlei de Lima to be upset and claim the position of victim. Guys leading them 22 miles into the race, four miles to go, and gets knocked off the road. Same perhaps would have been reasonable for Paul. He's run the race, as he says to Timothy. In his last letter, he's fought the good fight. And yet, even though he's done all of these wonderful things, all of these great things for the Lord, he's served faithfully and selflessly. Now he finds himself in a jail awaiting the sentence of death. The enemy was always trying to knock him out of the race. Philippian believers were like the spectators who picked Vanderlei de Lima up off the road and got him back in the race. They were partners with Paul in the work of the gospel. They were a wonderful source of encouragement and blessing. And so as we read through Paul's words of gratitude, we, I don't know about you, but I can't help but ask myself the question, do I resemble the faithful partnership of this church? Do I fan the flame in other people's lives? Am I committed to the work of the gospel? Am I allowing the gospel to transform my own life? Are you allowing it to transform your life? Are you sharing it with others? We must also wonder about our gratitude and prayer for other people. I mean, are you grateful for the people that God has brought into your path? How much time and energy do you put into praying for others and thanking God for them? Praying and working for their growth and for their development? Are you confident in the completing work of Jesus? I think sometimes we, because people are frustrated and if people let us down, we think that's a, it's a lost cause. We're not even going to give any energy to that. It's a lost cause. Give up before we should give up. 